like Pastor Brian said, we are continuing this series on the story of Scripture today. And as we get started, I want to tell you a little story about uh, a hike that I got to go on last summer. So last summer, my father-in-law turned 50, and he has a certain pension for the Colorado mountains. And so a few of us got together. We went to hike a 14er, which if you're unfamiliar, is a mountain that is 14,000 feet or higher. There are a handful of those in the Western United States. And so we did. Uh, that, that's him. Actually, my father-in-law, Tim. And uh, when you're first starting out on the trail, it's basically just switchbacks for several miles as you're trying to uh, get up into that. Oh, go too fast, too fast, go back. You, you're trying to get up into the mountain. And when you're on those switchbacks, when you're in the trees like this, it's really tough to see uh, sort of too far ahead of you or too far behind you. You're, you're kind of going back and forth up these trails and sometimes you'll kind of go around a corner or you'll kind of crest up over a ridge and the view could be very surprising because it's very different from what you were just experiencing. And then you reach 12,000 feet, and this is that next photo. At 12,000 feet, the air in the oxygen, or the oxygen in the air is too thin for the trees to really, um, to grow healthy. So the trees sort of stop growing. They kind of become little wimpy versions of the trees, and then they just start, stop growing altogether. And when you get there, the view really opens up. You can see the top of the mountain, which has been sort of hidden from view for a long time. And you can see sort of across the valley and different things, and it really starts to be exciting. And then you make it all the way to the top, and you can see for miles and miles around. It, it, you're at the highest place for miles, and you can just look in any direction and just see this unbelievable view. And this is kind of what we've been doing in this sermon series, where if you're just reading the Bible and you're reading about Abraham or, you know, before this, we were talking about the guy, uh, the life of Jacob. It's sort of like when you're in those switchbacks in the trees, you're reading about Jacob. You can sort, you remember what just happened and you're sort of looking for, you know, like things are going on, but it's tough to see Abraham from Jacob. It's tough to see Moses from Jacob. It's tough to see David. And so what we're doing in this series is sort of getting up high getting up on top of the mountain to be able to start to see how these big characters and this big story unfolds. And so that's what I'm hoping to do today. And what we've been saying throughout this series is that the Bible is 66 books. It's almost 2000 chapters within those books. And then it's just, at the end of the day, it's one big story. And if we're going to understand this big story of God from Genesis to Revelation, this whole thing, we got to sort of zoom out a little bit. We got to go up to the top of the mountain and start to see how it unfolds. And if we were to boil it down, to boil down this whole story of scripture into one line, this is it. That the story of scripture is that God is with us or he comes to be with us so that we can be with him. At the end of the day, all of the sort of the little stories and the whole big story comes down to this point that God came to be with his people. He created this world, but he didn't stand back. He came to be with his people and made a way for his people to be with him. And that's what we see from Genesis to Revelation. And one of the other things that we've been looking at in this series is that the Bible is not, not quite like other books. 
You know, you can have a book with a lot of chapters in it. The Bible is a little different because it's not totally organized chronologically. We've been talking about this. We've been doing this little mnemonic device, this little song with clapping to help us remember that the Bible is not organized chronologically so much as it is organized by genre. So there's these different genres. We've got the the law books. We've got the prophecy books. We've got the the books of poetry. And they just sort of clump those up and put them together. And so let's just, I know you're all excited for it. So let's just go through the song. We'll do it uh, together and then we'll move on. Some people are excited. Some people are like this again. So I'm going to get us started, okay? 512, 5512. 41211. One more time. 512, 5512. 41211. Great. Thank you. I know it's exciting. <clears throat> so we've been in that first five uh, so far. And I was looking back. I was actually doing a little bit of the math. We've, we're 25% through this sermon series. It's eight weeks. We've done two weeks so far. This is the third week. In 25% of the sermon series, we covered 5% of the Bible. That is not a recipe for success. Well, it actually is a recipe for success. The reason we have taken extra time to really get into the beginning of this story is because understanding how the story of scripture starts, understanding the beginning really helps us not only to understand how it unfolds and how it ends, but also to be able to relate to it personally. And so for the last two weeks, we've been looking at the start of the story of scripture. And we we saw the first week that the book of Genesis, part of the reason that exists is to help God's people start to answer five of the most important questions that, that human beings have. Questions like, where did I come from? Questions like, what's my purpose in life? Questions about value and about pain. Where did pain come from? And also giving us hints at hope and about future. How, how are things going to work out? What do I have to look forward to? And from there, we started to see that the beginning of Scripture is very, very concerned. The beginning of the story, it really wants to tell us about the type of relationship that God wants to have with his people. God wants a very specific type of relationship with you. And I know a lot of times we talk about a personal relationship with Jesus. And there's a, there's a strong element of, of, uh, of that in this idea that God knows us personally and that we can also know God personally. But the type of relationship is called a covenant. The, the specific type of relationship that God wants with his people is a covenant. And we said last week that a covenant is a binding relationship with the perfect blend of law and love. A binding relationship with the perfect blend of law and love. There's not tons of great examples of covenant relationships in our world today, but the closest one that I think I can think of and probably you know, you would agree with is the covenant of marriage. And marriage, it's sort of a good analog because we have this binding relationship element, right? On your wedding day, you come together and you you say something to the effect of, till death do us part, I am going to stay with this person. This is going to be my spouse 
for the rest of my life. There's a bindingness to that that you enter into. And as a husband and wife, you come together and you say, we are going to abide by certain principles. Me as a husband married to Rosemary, I am not going to go out on dates with other people. I am not going to do, I'm not going to, you know, make huge purchases without having a conversation first. We, we agree to, to these sort of, you could call it a law, but these, these policies as a, in, in that relationship. And because of that, it kind of unlocks this door for intimacy, for love, for, for greater connection. And that's kind of what our God's covenant relationship is like with his people, that there is this binding nature to it. The language that the Bible uses a lot, that God himself would use is, I will be your God and you will be my people. There's an exclusivity to that. He's saying, I'm going to be just your God. Like, I'm not going to be their God. I'm going to be your God and you are going to be my people. Like, you, you don't have other gods. You just have me. Sort of like, you're not going to go on dates with other gods. We are exclusive. And there's the difference, I think, between marriage and our relationship with God is that there's a, a big power differential, right? A marriage is between a husband and wife, between two equals. But we have in God's covenant relationship, there, it's, it's more of a, a master and a servant or a father and a child that God says, he, he sort of lays out more of the policies he sort of says, this is what it's going to be like. And we enter into that. And by living according to his covenant, it unlocks this ability for us to know him. It, we sort of get this sec extra access to, to, to be closer and more personal with him through this covenant. And we're going to continue that theme today. My hope, at, we're going to climb our own metaphorical mountain today and look out for miles around in the story of scripture to see how this covenant unfolds. Because this, this God with us that we could be with him, it's all covenant, just weaves its way through the stories that we read in the Bible. And my hope is that we're gonna come away with two things. The first is the greatest challenge that we face in a relationship with God. The greatest challenge that we face. And the second thing is hopefully we're gonna start to see how we address that challenge to experience the best of God's covenant, to go through that door, to get that unlocked door and get into that place where we are close and connected and engaged with the living God. And in preaching school, they tell you to build up to your big point and not to give it to people right away. Otherwise, they're going to check out. But I don't have time for that. Um, and so I'm just going to give it to you right, right here. And we're going to start to see how this, this weaves its way through the story as we're going to look at it today. The, the biggest obstacle that we face in our covenant relationship with God is what I'm going to call spiritual drift. God's covenant, when he starts to lay things out for us, it charts the course to holiness. And go back. Yeah, the, God's covenant, it charts the course to holiness. It tells us what does it look like for us to be God's people in as we do that, it unlocks the door for greater connection and intimacy with God. But our biggest challenge is that we are people who are prone to spiritual drift. Kind of like, I don't know if you've ever driven a car with tires that were misaligned. 
I know, I, going to school in Arkansas, and if you remember last week, uh, the grids, the big grids that Brian showed on the screen, uh, the roads in the South and the Midwest are very straight. And I used to, once you, I'd get my tires aligned and we would make a, a fun time out of setting up the car on the road and letting go of the steering wheel to see how long you could go before you needed to correct the, the car. But if you drive with misaligned tires, you, you, you let go of the steering wheel and before long you're in somebody else's lane and before long you're in the other flow of traffic. Before long you could be off the road in a ditch. And this is what it's like to be people in a covenant relationship with God. We deal with this spiritual drift. Our tires are sort of permanently misaligned in this relationship. And so as we look into this story to see where does, where does that come out and how are we supposed to deal with it, I want to pick up where we left off last week, which is with the man Moses. Moses, uh, you know, he's the guy who goes to Pharaoh, says, let my people go. You get the 10 plagues. They, the people come out of Egypt and they wander around in the desert for 40 years. God's bringing them to their land where they were promised uh, to, to be able to have and inhabit and prosper. And it takes them 40 years to get there. And we see God with uh, that first part, God with us on display. He is a pillar of smoke and a pillar of fire. You can actually see God's presence and he's leading them as they go. And the people are sort of like, at first they're happy to be out of slavery. Egypt was not a great spot for them to be in. But as they're going, they're like this, Stinks. Like, ah, can we go back? Like, are we there yet? And, you know, and they just start complaining. And God's like, this is going to take a while. And so it takes 40 years for them to get through. The, the people start to be like, you know, God's leading us this way, but kind of like, I don't like being in the desert. Like, I like having a house to live in. And so we see spiritual drift happening right away. And they get to the final, 40 years happen. Actually, God's just sort of like, I need all of these uh, complainers to sort, of, <laughs> to sort of pass away and to raise up a generation of people who are actually going to appreciate me to go into the promised land. And they get there and Moses hands off the leadership of the people to a man named Joshua. So now we're getting to the end of the first five books of the law in going into the next grouping of books, which are the books we would might call the books of history. And so Joshua takes the people, they cross the Jordan River, and they go into the land of Canaan. And they have to actually conquer it. It's not an uninhabited land, but there are people there. And so Joshua's sort of rallying cry is, be strong and courageous. And the people, they go through, and the whole book of Joshua is basically them just conquering the land, taking control of the cities that have already been built, very convenient. And they start to divvy up the land. And two times in the book of Joshua, we see God's covenant being renewed. God's covenant is renewed. And what we see really happening there is the generations are moving from one to the next. The generation that wandered in the desert is passing away and there's a new generation who didn't wander in the desert. And God's saying, hey, I, I'm not just the God of your dad and your mom. I wanna be your God and I want you to be my person. And so maybe that's something that you just need to hear today. That you know, you've been a part of church or you've been involved in, 
in, you know, Christianity, but it always sort of felt like this is my parents' church or this is my, my, my parents' faith and I'm just sort of here to make them happy. God is here saying to you, I don't want to just be their God. I want to be your God. And I want to have this relationship with you where we can be close. And so he renews the covenant. And Joshua, the book of Joshua kind of seems like a, like a bright spot, like the, in terms of spiritual drift, the people are doing pretty good. But even in the book of Joshua, things sort of go out of hand. And I don't have time. I mean, there's tons of examples that we could look at to get into this. But even in the book of Joshua, even as the people are doing what God told them to do and conquering the land, there's still drift going on. But we get to the end of book of, of Joshua and the land is almost completely conquered. Few things left to, to take care of. And now we ha- this is where the second covenant gets, the covenant gets renewed the second time. The end of the book of Joshua. A new generation is raised up and Joshua g- gathers them all together and he says, look, you need to decide. You need to decide today who you're gonna serve. Are you gonna be, God wants to be your God. Are you going to be God's people or are you going to serve some other God? Are you gonna serve the, the God that our ancestors, you know, served when they were in Egypt? You have to choose. And they say, we're going to serve the Lord. And he's like, no, you're not. You're not good enough. You're not strong enough. You don't have what it takes. And they say, no, but we really want to double down. They say, yes, we want to serve the Lord. Yeah. And he's like, are you sure? And they say, yes, we want to serve the Lord. Three times. They triple down on their decision. And Joshua was very solemn with them. He's saying, this is not a, this is not a joke. Covenant is a serious business. You don't just enter into a marriage and double down and triple down. And then three weeks, you know, three years later when you're like, man, they're really, I didn't realize how annoying they were. And you're like, I'm going to just go, you know, see, you know, who I can talk to at, at the bar. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to ch- check out my options. This is entering into a marriage is a serious endeavor. And entering into this covenant with God is similarly serious. And he's like, look, you got to protect yourself against drift. And so he sets up this big stone and he says, whenever you look at this, you remember that you're in a covenant relationship with God. Kind of like when we get married, we have a wedding ring and says, whenever you look at this, you remember that you have devoted yourself to one person. But then the book of Judges begins. The time of Judges begins. And Joshua dies. The difference is he doesn't have anybody to hand off to the, the people of Israel too. Moses you know, sort of handed the leadership over to Joshua. Joshua doesn't have anybody to hand the leadership over to. And so God is just going to be their God. God's going to be their leader. And the people start to drift and it starts to get, it goes from bad to worse in the book of Judges. They actually have a little, if you were to look at the start of the book in chapter two, it's sort of a little summary of what the whole book is all about. And I'm not, I'm not going to read the whole thing. It's a little bit long, but basically what happens is they conquer the land. Joshua sends every, all the different tribes of Israel to the, their allotted portions of land. And throughout that whole generation, everybody who was a part of this conquest, they, they live and they die and they serve God with faithfulness. But then a new generation comes up. And it's interesting because it says specifically that the new generation did not know God or the things that he had done for his people. So this, this new generation didn't even hear the stories of how God had, had fought with the people to conquer the land or how God had rescued them out of Egypt. 
They didn't know God. And then the drift started. There were other people in the land and they started to say, well, like, you know, let's, let's start being like these people. Like they keep praying to this, this pole and it makes their crops like great. Like, why don't we do that? You know, sort of help our crops grow. And they start to cheat on God. They start to go on dates with different gods and, and God gets very angry. And so what happens in the book of Judges is this cycle. They go around and around this track where they fall away from God. They break the covenant and God in his, in his anger and the consequences of that allow different raiders to come in and plunder them and, and you know, oppress them. And they are, the people are impoverished and, and oppressed and they cry out and they say, save us. And God will raise up a judge who will rescue the people, get them free again. And, this, and then for the lifetime of that judge and the people who experience that God's rescue, they serve the Lord. And then when they die, the next generation doesn't hear about the works of the Lord. The next generation starts to drift and it just start, goes around and around again. One generation of faithfulness and then a generation of oppression and, and faithlessness and breaking the covenant, a generation of spiritual drift. And what happens over the course of the book of Judges is it's, it's not just a track where they're going around and around, this cycle. It's, it's sort of a downward spiral. Every time it's, it seems to get worse and worse. The, the, the rebellion gets worse, the oppression gets worse, and then the time of peace and, and prosperity gets shorter and shorter because they're just drifting more and more off course. And at the end of the book of Judges, there's this great line. It says, in those days, Israel had no king, no leader, and everyone did whatever they thought was best. Everyone did as they saw fit. It's a bleak picture, this, this idea of spiritual drift. You look at the big picture narrative, God has made a way for his people to be with him. And he's, he's chosen to be with his people. He opened up this option, this door that says, hey, if you would, if you would live like this, if you would kind of uh, come out from the people around you and be special and be holy, that's what it means to be holy. We said that God's covenant charts the course to holiness. If you would follow that course, you would find a level of love and closeness with God that you had never thought possible. And the people just end up drifting farther and farther away. And that's where the book of Samuel starts. The book of First and Second Samuel talk about a new kind of drift. The people, no longer are they just serving other gods, but they also say, hey, we want a king. We speci it specifically says in 1 Samuel that we want a king just to be like the people around us. Everyone around us has a king. We don't have a king. And God says, I am your king. And they say, no, we want a king like the people around us. We want a king that we can see. And God's like, all right, like this is going to be bad for you. But this, they insist and he gives them a king. And what I want to do with the remainder of our time is to just juxtapose the first two kings of Israel. As we're seeing how people are prone to spiritual drifting. This happens on a big scale, right? From one generation to the next. But it also happens on a small scale. Spiritual drift. Has anyone experienced spiritual drift before? 
where you, where you sort of say like, maybe you have this, maybe it's a particular sin where you're like, I am never going to do this again. I am, I am going to stay away from this thing and I'm not going to come back to it. And, you know, you're trying to turn away from it and you head this direction and then slowly you're like, well, you know, th- just one degree at a time, your course changes um, off course and you wind back at the thing you said you would never do again. So it happens on a big scale and it happens on a small scale. And by looking at the lives of Saul, King Saul and King David, we can start to see how is it that we deal with spiritual drift? How do we overcome this challenge, this main, main challenge when it comes to our covenant relationship with God? And in broad strokes, Samuel is, uh, uh, anoints the first king and his name is Saul. And Saul is the guy that everybody would pick first on the dodgeball lineup. He's really tall. He's really athletic. He looks like, you know, he's going to really get you the win. And he starts off pretty good. They get some victories under the king. And, you know, the people sort of come to God. And, and, but then the drift starts because it invariably starts. No matter how well-intentioned you are, when you start out this journey with God, when you start in this covenant relationship, the drift is going to come. And so what we have to look at is how is he going to handle it? How is he going to handle when he starts to go out of his lane and into the next lane? And there's this, this story where Saul brings his army and he's going to attack the Philistines. But the Philistines find out and they start mounting forces. And the, for the number of soldiers that Israel has, the Philistines have that many chariots and num- numerous, you know, multitudes of soldiers in addition to that. And so Saul is freaking out. And Samuel says, wait, wait until I come back. I'm going to come back. We're going to offer the sacrifice to the Lord. And then we're going to go into battle and the Lord is going to give us victory. And Saul is trying to wait and he's looking and his people are getting scared. His soldiers are freaking out and they're starting to say, dude, I don't want to die. I'm going home. Like I'm getting out of here. And he sees his forces scattering and he's like, now this is the moment. Like drift is coming. What is, what is he going to do? And he's like, I got it. I got to do something. And so he offers the sacrifice himself. And right as he's done, there up the road, it's very dramatic. There up the road starts walking Samuel. And he's like, what have you done? And Saul's like, you left me with no choice. He sort of deflects the blame. He sort of says, I had to do this so that we could win. So he's, he goes on the defensive. When he gets confronted about this drift, Saul goes on the defensive. Saul says, it's not my fault. And, Sam, and uh, Samuel's like, no, man, you got to own this. And eventually he does. And God continues to work through him. But it happens again. And it happens again. There's so many examples in Saul's life where he just starts to drift. And as soon as he gets confronted with it, he goes on the defensive. He's like, no, 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 no. Like, you don't understand. There's a good reason for this. And if you had been here and all this stuff. To justify his going off course, this spiritual drift. David, on the other hand, God, Scripture calls a man after my own heart. David, the one who read the psalm that Brian, Pastor Brian read at the end of our worship time. David's the guy who says, as, 
as when a deer is so thirsty and they're looking for that stream so that they can be refreshed, that's how much my heart longs for God. I wanna be with God, I'm, I'm, I am for God. So he's starting off in this place where he's just like all in, yes! trying to get those tires aligned perfectly. I, I'm all about God. But even his best intentions, even scripture calling him the man after God's own heart, the man who is gonna do all the will of God, David is not exempt from spiritual drift. None of us should ever be so foolish to think that we are exempt from spiritual drift because we have resolved in our hearts not to do this thing again or that we have made a commitment and we're gonna stick to that. Because if you know, David makes some very, it would be sort of an insult to call it drift. David gets completely blown off course in the later part of his life. The, the time of year when the kings go out to war, scripture says, David stays back. He's not supposed to be there, but he chooses to stay back. And while he's there, it's a sort of one-step drift. And then while he's there, he's on the roof of his palace, just enjoying the day. And he sees this woman and he desires her and he calls her to him. He sleeps with this woman who's not his wife. And then he, he finds out that she's pregnant and he finds out that she's married to a general in his army. And so he devises, he, he's drifting. He's getting blown off course. And instead of kind of, from that one step, like getting back on course, he starts to, to sort of, you know, snowball out of control. And he ends up committing murder he, to cover up his adultery, to cover up his sin. The, the well-intentioned man, the man after God's own heart is completely blown off course. But this is the difference between David and Saul. The kings get confronted by the prophets. The prophets confront the kings and they say, you have done wrong in the eyes of the Lord. And King Saul chooses to be defensive. King Saul chooses to try and justify himself and try to, to explain why what he did was actually okay. But David does something very different. And this is really what I want us all to take away from today. Is that David chooses in that moment to fall on his face in repentance. Nathan, the prophet, tells David a story and David gets really upset. And, and Nathan says, actually in the story, the person you are so upset with is you because God knows what you did. And instead of trying to justify himself to say, oh, no, no, you know, like there was good reason for all of this. He, he falls down on his face before the Lord and he writes Psalm 51. And I just want to read this to you. Um, to give you a little bit of a picture, just to start here. It says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. He's saying, I am. You are right. I have done wrong. I have done evil. This is, this is not a good situation for me. Would you please forgive me? He, he, he goes even farther. He says, surely I was sinful at birth from the time even my mother conceived of me. He goes on to say, create in me a pure heart. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. 
And this, this, the book of Psalms is, is really filled with Psalms like this. This is not the only instance of David falling in repentance before God. If you were to look back, a lot of the, the Psalms will, will say of David underneath, David's written this Psalm and he's just saying, God, I've done wrong. I've drifted. I've gotten blown totally off course way farther than I ever thought I would ever go. Please forgive me. Please help bring me back on course, creating me a clean heart, renew a steadfast spirit in me, a spirit within me that would, would stay on course, that would combat spiritual drift. And this is what we learn about God's covenant relationship and how we overcome the biggest challenge that we face. You don't overcome spiritual drift by trying harder. Don't believe that lie. If you have a sin in your life and you're like, the old, like, I can beat this just by trying harder, that is a lie that is designed to keep you in that cycle where you're gonna keep drifting off. The way to overcome spiritual drift is frequent and full repentance. Frequent and full repentance. That's how we overcome spiritual drift in our lives. That's how David overcame spiritual drift in his life. And David was not perfect. Far, far from it. But he's called a man after God's own heart because of this, because of his frequent and full repentance. You might be asking yourself, what does that mean for us today? What does that mean for me? All of these stories, thousands of years ago, God's covenant relationship, there's a lot of moving pieces here. And I want to invite the worship team to come back up as we try and land this plane here at 1108. <laughs> I'm sorry about that. Um, God still works in covenants. God's relationship is still, the relationship that he wants with you is still a covenant. It's a covenant that looks different. We are no longer required to keep the law that's listed in the first five books of the Old Testament. That's a, that's, it's called the Old Covenant. We're a part of something called the New Covenant. And as we keep going in this series, you're going to hear about that. But God still works in this covenant. And that means we are still susceptible to this spiritual drift. And if we're going to learn the lesson of this one big story of Scripture as to how we overcome that spiritual drift, it comes down to, are you willing, not to just try harder, but to... to surrender yourself, to surrender your will to God's will? Are you willing to frequently and fully repent of your sins to God to get, to sort of course correct, to get back on track? I think one of the ways that that has looked like in my life, even just recently, there are uh, a group of men that I meet with on a weekly basis uh, just to try together to get to grow and maturity as followers of Jesus. A little discipleship group that we do. And in that group, we, we spent some time, some serious time getting together and just for this one, this week's gathering, what we're gonna do together is we're just gonna confess to one another. I'm gonna tell you the things that I need to repent from. And I need you to pray for me. In the book of James, it says that we're supposed to do that. And as the people pray for the one who confesses, there, there's healing that comes. There's course correction that comes. And so I wonder, for you, 
Are there people in your life that you would be able to trust to confess to? That you would be able to take this thing and say, the answer to this drifting problem, to this sin, is not me trying harder. I need to repent from this. I need to confess to this. Is there someone you can bring that to? And if, if the answer is no, I would encourage you to start looking. I would encourage you to, start, to, to, to find somebody in our community, a trusted brother or sister or a leader that you can say, I, I need to get this out in the open. I need God's course correction on this in my life. One of the things that I do to try and help myself, and this is something that I would encourage everybody to do if you're not already, is to spend time every morning with the Lord. It's to spend time every morning to say, uh, I want to start off today going in the right direction. Maybe yesterday, you know, the car sort of went off track. Maybe yesterday the car went out of this lane, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get the wheel back to center and I'm going to drive in the right direction at least for this morning. And scripture says God's mercies are new every morning. And that's a, that's a way that we can that we can, you know, the spirit of God can empower us to get into that covenant relationship, to unlock that door, to experience God more closely. So I'm going to pray and we're going to go into a time of worship and I'm going to encourage you to respond to this message. To first of all, recognize where are you prone to drift in your relationship with the Lord? Where is it that you are prone to get off course or to get blown totally out to sea? And to bring that before the Lord today. If you want to come up to the altars on either side and just spend some time in prayer before the Lord, you're invited to do that. If you want to go find somebody and be able to confess to them and have them pray for you, you can do that. If you need to just in your heart, just to lay these things before God, maybe you can just open up to Psalm 51 and just read that as we worship here, wrapping up the service to bring this before God and to say, God, I want this relationship with you. I want to know you. I want to experience everything that you've experienced. You've created me for this relationship. You've given me your image and your purpose in this part of this relationship. I want to experience that. So I got to bring this before you. I would invite you to do that as we worship. Father God, thank you for this story of scripture. Thank you for the, the relationship that you have invited us into. This covenant where you have promised never to leave us, where you've promised to be faithful to us. Lord, forgive us for the times where we went on dates with other, with other gods. Forgive us for the times where we entertained thoughts that are not worthy of you. Lord, forgive us for the places in our life where we drift off course and the places where we've started to just become okay with that drift, where we say, I'm, we start playing the comparison game. We say, I'm not bad as that person, or at least I don't do this. God, would you convict us of our sin this morning? Would you, would, just like the prophet Nathan, would you sort of point at us and say, you are the man, you are the one who is doing this thing. You need to repent. Lord, would you help us in that moment not to experience uh, the shame of that, Lord, but to experience the, the 
grace that comes when we do that, to experience the love and forgiveness that comes when we bring these things for, before you because you're not going to divorce us. You're not going to cut yourself off from us. You are going to embrace us. Lord, would we, be, uh, would we, would we relinquish all of our defensive impulses and just simply come before you and say, God, I'm, I'm drifting. I need help. I need to get back on course. Lord, forgive me for this sin. Forgive me for this thing that I need to repent of. And Lord, as we do that, as a community, as a, as a, as a church body, as a family, and also as individuals, would you just, as we walk through that door of love and relationship and intimacy, God, would we just have our minds blown by how amazing you are? by how all of the, the ways that you provide for us. Would you continue to give us crazy testimonies and stories of, of your faithfulness and provision? Help us to know you more and to know you better. Give you this time. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.